So if you've ever been in a communications class in college, I know Andrew Molesky has studied comm, one of those guys, that's right. When you're coming up and you're giving a speech or you're giving a sermon, I always say you got to have some attention grabber at the beginning, something to get, you know, get people's attention. And one way to do that is to say some controversial statement that'll get people on the edge of their, uh, edge of their seat. And I know I usually don't do this, but this is my attempt this morning at saying something really controversial that will get you on the edge of your seat, make you want to listen. So here, here's my attention grabber. Instructions are important. Instructions are important. And some of you might be like, that's not controversial, but I'm looking at you guys. I'm looking at you dads. You buy things for your house and you take the instructions and you just set them aside and you go right at the thing that you're doing. And you just think, I can put this together on, you know, on my own. I don't need to look at, you know, what the people who designed it say about it. I mean, I can just put this together. And it's true that instructions are more important in some situations than in others. But in general, instructions are fairly important. I want you to think for just a moment about skydiving. Lexi went skydiving for her golden birthday when she turned 22. And she went skydiving, you know, where you jump in tandem. There's someone else with you and they're kind of like holding on. They do all of the things. You just kind of are along for the ride. But I want you to think that you're going skydiving and it's your first time jumping on your own. Maybe you've gone in tandem with other people, but you're going to go jump out of this plane on your own. Before you go and you jump, they're going to give you a lot of instructions. They're going to sit you down and they're going to make sure that you know how to use all the pieces of equipment and everything because you don't want to just jump out of the plane, look up at the plane and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing. That's not good, right? Because your life is at stake. You want to listen to those instructions. And of course, if you're putting together an Ikea bookshelf, it may matter less. But again, instructions are important, and they're really important for important things. And so this morning, as we go to God's word, we're going to see Jesus giving instructions to some messengers that he's sending out. And when we think about what are the important things in our life that we need to really slow down and we need to pay attention to the instructions, I think of anything, the mission that God gives and the mission that Christ gives to his church and his people is one of those things where we don't just run out into the world and just start doing things the way that we think things should be done. We don't just figure out Christ's mission on our own. We need to slow down. We need to pay attention to the instructions. And then we need to engage in what Christ is calling us to do. So let's go to God's word this morning in Luke 10. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 10 verses 1 through 24. Right now, I'm just going to read the first half through verse 12, and then I'll read the, the other sections as we uh, go through the rest of the sermon. So let's go to God's word. Again, Luke 10, verses 1 through 12 right now, but we're going to look all the way through 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. 
Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for giving us your word, for speaking to us, revealing yourself to us, for giving good direction and instruction for our life as we seek to put away sin, as we seek to live in obedience for you, as we seek to follow Christ in this world as people that proclaim the good news of the gospel. And I just pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, as I preach, as we read from your word, that you would open our eyes, illumine our minds to understand the things that you have to say to us, that we would apply it in our lives and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, as we got back into the book of Luke, we saw the big turning point in Luke, which is Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And for the next, I don't know how many weeks, but for quite a while here in the middle section of the book of Luke, we're going to be looking at Jesus' mission and journey toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He's going to be journeying toward Jerusalem. And in our passage today, Jesus sends out these messengers on ahead of him to the towns that he's about to go to on his journey to proclaim his message. And as we look at this passage about the sending of these messengers, we're going to split the passage up into three main sections. So if you're taking notes, these three main sections, and I'll repeat them as we go through. The first section is relaying the message, or relaying the message. Second is responding to the message. Responding to the message. The third is rejoicing in the message rejoicing in the message. And if you want something like a big idea or main truth, it's actually just kind of cramming all those together into one sentence, that we need to relay, respond to, and rejoice in the message of Christ's kingdom. We need to relay, respond to, and rejoice in the message of Christ's kingdom. So let's dive in here. Let's look at the first section, relaying the message. Relaying the message. So as Jesus sends out these messengers on ahead of him, he gave them a clear set of instructions about how they are to approach their mission. And his instructions largely deal with what they are to expect as they approach their mission. If you ever do a debrief before some important thing that you need to go out, part of it is telling you how to do what you need to do. And part of It is telling you what to expect as you're out there doing the thing that you are sent out to do. So Jesus deals 
he not only tells them what to do, but he tells them what to expect as they're doing it. And I want us to look at five particular things that Jesus tells them about their mission as he sends them out. And there's a lot more we could say. There's a lot of verses here, but I want us to focus in on these five. It's that the mission is overwhelming, it's dangerous, urgent, proclamatory. That'll be our big word for the morning, and I'll explain what it means. Proclamatory and dependent. The mission is overwhelming, dangerous, urgent, proclamatory, and dependent. So first, the mission is overwhelming. Look with me to verse 2, just the first half of this verse. And Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I'll get to the second half of that, of that sentence of that verse in just a little bit. But even if you just focus in on that first section of verse 2, it gives us a, a picture that we should have in our heads. So I want you to think for a moment about what Jesus is kind of portraying here. I want you to imagine a huge field, this ripe harvest, and standing next to this massive field, you have just a few people, a farmer and maybe some hired hands, and they're standing there in front of this huge field. And in Wisconsin, we have a lot of farmers, right? So you've probably driven by cornfields during the harvest. And you know that harvest time is an is a urgent time. You've got to go out there and you've got to harvest that stuff while it's ripe. So sometimes you'll see you know, people in their combines at midnight out in their field with lights on, out harvesting the things that they need to harvest. And so these, these laborers are standing next to this huge field and looking out and saying, how on earth are we going to be able to harvest all of this field? This is way too much for us. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And there are a lot of overwhelming situations in our life that maybe we could use as a substitute image here. Maybe you wake up in the morning and you walk out into your living room and it's an absolute train wreck. It's just a mess. And you look at this and you say, this is too much for me. I just want to sit down and have a cup of coffee and forget that this mess exists. Or you're a college student and you just have way more work in front of you than you ever think you can catch up on. We know what it's like to be completely overwhelmed by the work in front of us. But in one sense, the mission that Christ calls us to is an overwhelming mission. Even if we look at our world today, and we look at all of the barriers to doing evangelism, and we say we're a church with 65 to 70 adults, and we're trying to reach a city of 60,000, right? This is an overwhelming work. It's something way beyond what we can do. So the mission is overwhelming. Second, the mission is dangerous. It's a dangerous, dangerous mission. Look to verse 3. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is where we might say, good pep talk, Jesus. You know, thanks for encouraging us. You know, saying, you can do it. You've got this. And then he says, this work is too much for you. This work is dangerous. And now it's good to be excited for the mission that Jesus calls us to. But these messengers that Jesus sent out and us today, we need to remember that we're not always going to be liked for the message that we proclaim. And we shouldn't expect that we're always going to be liked for the mission that we, uh, the message that we proclaim. Jesus tells us that we're going to be hated for his sake. 
People are going to hate us. People are going to reject us. Even later in this passage, we're going to see that people are going to respond with rejection to the message that these people have to bring. And Jesus wants them to know that. It's no good going in without good expectations. And when we live in this world, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be thrown into this crazy confusion when things get hard for us as Christians. We act like something weird is happening in the world. It's probably more weird in the history of the world when things are easy for Christians. We should expect that things are going to be hard. The mission is overwhelming. The mission is dangerous. Third, the mission is urgent. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So Jesus is pretty much saying, I want you to pack light, and I don't want you to get distracted. Right? Just, here's, here's stuff. Don't take all this extra stuff with you. He's not saying, like, be rude to people when you walk by them out on the road. But he's saying, don't get sidetracked. You have an important mission to do. You need to go and do it. And this is important for us to remember. The message that we proclaim is an urgent message. And I'm not saying, and Josh and I reinforce this a lot, we're not saying that you need to sell all your things and go live as a vagabond wandering around Oshkosh, and then really you'll be able to engage in the mission of Christ. But we do need to see that sometimes we're sidetracked by wanting a comfy life. Sometimes we're sidetracked by so many distractions in our life that we forget that there's a priority on the mission that Christ has called us to is God's people. The mission is overwhelming. It's dangerous. It's urgent. Fourth, the mission is proclamatory. And again, I said, this is your big word for the morning. Proclamatory. And what that means is it's a mission of proclamation. A mission of proclamation. Verses 9 and 11 Jesus gives directions to his disciples about what to do when they are rejected and when they are received in a town. So he gives them two sets of directions based on whether that city receives them or rejects them. And there's one thing in common in those two sets of instructions. One thing that they're supposed to do whether they're received or rejected. And that's to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. The one thing that they are called to do in every circumstance is to proclaim that the kingdom of God, the news that the King Jesus had come, the good news of his gospel, that is the one thing they were supposed to always do. And we need to remember that in our mission. There's so many good things that we should do. And there's so many good things that we can do. These messengers were called to heal the sick. We should care for people's physical needs. We should give to mercy ministry things and care about that as a church. We should practice hospitality. But as we live out the truth of the gospel in our lives, we need to not forget that the gospel is something that should also be on our lips. The gospel is something that we need to speak, something that we need to proclaim. The mission is proclamatory. And lastly, the mission is dependent. The mission is dependent. It's dependent on others. So as Jesus sends out these disciples in verses 5 through 7, he pretty much tells them that they need to live off of the generosity of other people. They're going to go, they're going to go into these towns and they're going to stay in people's houses. They're going to eat the food that's set in front of them because the laborer deserves his wages, right? They're called to be dependent on other people as they go out. 
But even more importantly than being dependent on other people, they're called to be dependent on God. And this is where I want to come back to the end of verse 2. Right? They're dependent on God. So go back to verse 2 with me for a moment. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, and always pay attention to that word when you run into it, when you're reading your Bible. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus' instructions to his messengers are overwhelming. And they would be discouraging unless they remember that they are not the lords of the harvest. Jesus and God are the lords of the harvest. And therefore, what does he tell them? He tells them they must pray. They must pray. I think there's this attitude that goes around that praying is just an excuse for not actually doing anything. And that can be true. We can say, oh, I'll pray for you and never go and actually serve people, right? That can happen. But at the same time, we need to remember that praying is doing something. And praying might actually be the most important thing that we're called to do. Josh has read this uh, quote before. It's a J.C. Ryle quote, of course, because that's who he quotes more than half of the time. But I think it bears repeating this morning. If we know anything of prayer... Let us make it a point of conscience never to forget this solemn charge of our Lord. Let us settle it in our minds that it is one of the surest ways of doing good and stemming evil. Personal working for souls is good. Giving money is good. But praying is best of all. By prayer we reach him without whom work and money are alike in vain. We obtain the aid of the Holy Spirit. Money can pay agents. Universities can give learning. Congregations may elect. Elders may ordain. That's appropriate for us as we start thinking about having our own elders and particularization, right? Congregations may elect. Elders may ordain. But the Holy Spirit alone can make ministers of the gospel and raise up workmen in the spiritual harvest who need not be ashamed. Never, never may we forget that if we would do good to the world, our first duty is to pray. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for our city and for our world and the mission of Christ. Sometimes uh, we have this tendency as we read scripture to only view it through a single perspective, particularly when we're approaching narrative, which is what this is. And my tendency, if I'm reading this passage, would be to view it only through the perspective of the people that Jesus is sending out. And this passage certainly has a lot to say about engaging in Christ's mission and him sending people out. But I think that we also need to view this passage through the lens of the people who are receiving the message. Not just the people who are proclaiming it, but the people who are receiving it. So that's our second main section here, responding to the message. I want you to look with me at verses 8 through 12. As we look there, we see that there are two very different results for towns that rejected the messengers and their message and those who received them. The people who received these disciples and their message were blessed. Peace was proclaimed to them. 
They experienced the blessing of physical hearing, uh, healing. They received the good news that the kingdom of God had come near to them. But for the people who rejected the message, there was a very different response. Verses 10 through 12, we see this. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into his streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So the practice here of wiping the dust off of your feet might not make as much sense in our culture as it did that day. But when a Jew would go and visit a Gentile city, when they were preparing to leave that Gentile city, they would wipe the dust off their feet. There's a way of symbolizing wiping off the impurity of being people who, around people who are not God's people. And so when Jesus is telling his messengers to do this, imagine if they go into a Jewish city and they proclaim this message and they are rejected. For them to walk out into the streets and wipe the dust off their feet was to say, you're no better than a heathen city. You're no better than the people that are outside of the people of God. You are rejected. That would be incredibly insulting to treat a Jewish city as if they were Gentiles. And then they proclaim that message again, right? The kingdom of God has come near to you. For the people who received it, that was good news. Good news of a savior. Good news of the promised Messiah, the king who had come near. But for the people who rejected it, if you're outside the people of God, the message of the coming Messiah is not a happy message for you. It's a message of judgment. which We saw in verse 12, of the, it's going to be worse for you than for the city of Sodom. You're under the judgment of God. So the question then is, how should they have responded? Now, how should we respond? I think verses 13 through 16 give us a good picture of that. Let me read those. We didn't read it earlier. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So Jesus pronounces woe or judgment on three cities in this little section. And this is where we get to practice some geography. The three cities that he pronounces judgment upon, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, are all cities in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. These, all three of these cities were cities that Jesus did ministry in, where he performed miracles, places where he taught. And he's pronouncing woe on them and saying that, it's, uh, that if the works that Jesus had done in those cities had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile cities, just north of Galilee, so it's cities that these people would have been really familiar with, Tyre and Sidon, if they had seen the same things, they would have responded in repentance. So I want to look just really quickly at how these, these uh, cities in Galilee responded and what was wrong with their response. I want just for a moment us to turn back a few pages to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 31. I think this is very, really enlightening here. Helps us understand what's going on. 
Verse 31, 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And right after that, Jesus heals a man with a demon. And it says in verse 36 that they were all amazed when they saw Jesus do this. And all throughout the first chunk of Luke, we see people marveling at the work of Jesus. People being astounded at the things he did, amazed at the things he did. But Jesus still pronounces judgment and woe on them. I think this is really instructive for us. It's not enough just to be entertained by Jesus. Being entertained by Jesus isn't just the response that he wants. And when we come to church, we need to remember that. We come and we want to have an encounter with the risen Christ at church. It's not just so that we're entertained. It's not just so we go away saying, that was a really neat experience. That's not enough. And it's easy to just say that that's a problem in those churches with fog machines and laser shows and the huge band and all of those things. But we need to recognize that that's a temptation for us too. I don't know about you, but listening to a good expository biblical sermon like gets me as pumped up as watching a Packers touchdown. Right? Like I, like I leave a good sermon, I'm like, that was awesome. That was great. So we're, we have just the same temptation to be entertained instead of responding the way that Jesus wants us to respond. So how should we respond? Back to Luke 10 for just a moment. Luke 10, chapter, uh, verse 13. He pronounces these woes. He says, if these works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. The response that Jesus was longing for and looking for was repentance from the people that heard his message. And that's what we need. When we come and we listen to the word of God, we listen to the teaching of of Jesus from his word, we need to respond with repentance. We need to come with ears that are open to have God's word reveal our sin, to open up all of the mess of our hearts before him, to make us feel sorrow for our sin, to draw us to confession of our sin, for us to turn from our sin, to look to Jesus in faith for forgiveness and for empowerment to live for him. We should always long when we come to church that our hearts are going to be drawn more and more to repentance and to faith. That's how we need to respond to the message. And then lastly, we've, so we've looked at relay, relaying the message, responding to the message, and let's look at the final section briefly here. Rejoicing in the message. Let's go to verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So we can imagine these messengers coming back. They're so excited. They've seen fruit in their ministry. They've seen things happen that Jesus didn't even tell them that they, were, that they were going to have authority to do in his initial instructions, right? They come back and they're saying, demons listen to us. We casted demons out. This is great. And Jesus affirms that it's, that it's great. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And there's like three or four 
you know, big views on what this sentence from Jesus means. But I think if we look at the context, Jesus is talking about authority over demons and the work of ministry as being, uh, as pushing back the powers of Satan. I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, as you're going out, as you're casting out demons, I saw Satan and his power diminish. And we see that throughout the Gospels as Jesus does war against the powers of this world and he is victorious. And even his disciples were victorious as they went. But then he tells them something so good and something we need to hear. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but that your names are written in heaven. He said, it's good that these things happened. But don't rejoice primarily in the things that you have done for God. You need to rejoice primarily in the things that God has done for you. You need to rejoice that you're one of his. You need to rejoice that he's written your name in heaven. It's such a temptation for us, not only the people in vocational ministry, but for all of us in the ministry that Christ has called each of us to. As we go out, as we do the work of the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel as we see it as something for other people, it's easy to forget that the gospel message is also for us. The gospel message is for you. And the gospel message is for me. We need to not get so distracted by the things that we do for God. All, seeking all of the fruit in all of the ministries that we have. That we forget the truth of the gospel. That we forget to spend time personally in God's word. Daily reminding us of ourselves for Jesus. We should always rejoice more in what God has done for us than in the work that we have done for him. So we need to rejoice in the message of the gospel personally. And the last thing that we need to see is that we need to rejoice in the one who makes the message fruitful. Look with me to these last verses. Let's go to verse uh, verse 21 here. In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Quick side note. Just want you to notice the Trinity here, right? This is such an important doctrine. Here we have the the Son rejoicing in the Spirit, thanking the Father. And the intra-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son are actually important through the rest of this section. So just keep that in your mind. So he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God is the one who hides and God is the one who reveals, not us. And in God's gracious wisdom, his way of choosing to reveal and his way of choosing to hide is really counterintuitive to us and counterintuitive from the world's point of view. The father doesn't go around looking for the wisest, the smartest, the most talented people. Human wisdom, knowledge, and talent do you no good apart from the revelatory work of God, God's revelation. In fact, God often chooses little children. He chooses the lowly. He chooses the humble in this world for his work. And look with me to verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son. This is talking about this 
in this relationship between the father and the son that they know each other, but other people don't have the ability to get inside of the, of the Trinity to understand what's going on unless and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Knowledge of God must be revealed knowledge. God must show us who he is. We can't just ascend to that knowledge on our own. God is the one who makes the gospel effective in opening blind eyes, makes the gospel effective in convincing us, converting sinners, saving people. We are not the ones who do that work. We bear the message, but we don't bring the fruit. God is the one who opens blind eyes. So I just want to end with this. If you do see, if your eyes have been opened, if you see the truth of the gospel, you see the fruit of repentance in your life, then rejoice. I want you to rejoice. Rejoice that God in his wisdom has done the work of revealing Christ to you. That God gave you a new heart that responds to the gospel with faith and repentance. Praise God. And if God has done that work in you, then verses 23 and 24 are just as much for you as they are for those first disciples. So I just want to end with these final words of Jesus, verses 23 and 24. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So blessed, blessed and happy are you if you see. Let's pray. Lord of the harvest, praise you that you have opened blinded eyes, that you have revealed to the people that are yours the truth of the gospel. And I just pray that you would give us hearts that are always responding to your word with repentance and faith. And as you send us out into this world as lambs in the midst of wolves to a labor that is way beyond our capacity and ability, Father, we pray that you would raise up more laborers, that you would do your work of gathering people to yourself. Father, work in us, work in this city and in this world to draw people to Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.